This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, America Occupied, The Darnarvian Chronicles, Part 1. And the author is S.R. Larson, and he joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Sven. Hey, nice to be with you. Well, let me read just a brief statement that you wrote about introducing your book. I think it sums it up very, very well and puts a nice dramatic edge on it. Here's, I'm quoting you, it's late May 2013. The invasion of the United States of America is imminent. Your freedom will soon be lost. You will be enslaved by the invaders. Will you, yes you, stand up and fight them? If not, why should anyone else bother to risk their lives for your freedom? Well, that sounds quite uh, provocative and at the same time very timely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know it does. Why, why did you write the book? Well, I had uh, several, uh, several things that, that um, sort of created a perfect storm of, of interest in, in writing this book. Um, I've always been a fan of science fiction, and I I, uh, uh, I, I love the uh, the the um, opportunities and the the, the uh, imaginative room that science fiction creates. And I've also always been a politics buff. Um, what, what I wanted to do was uh, to see to um, sort of tell a story about right and wrong and freedom and tyranny. Um, uh, in the context of science fiction, and I wanted to do this, of course, in an entertaining way. Um, and I wanted to ask a question, really, and, and, and sort of explore it. What would happen if the, the greatest country on Earth was invaded and, and taken over by, by a tyrannical um, superior race, and we were enslaved by them? And, and how would we react? Would we stand up and fight for, for our freedom, or would we, would we succumb to, to the tyranny? That, that's sort of what, what drove me to write this book, and, and uh, it's, it's the, um, the issue that, that uh, I'm, still, I'm still thinking about. And, and, and what I wanted to do especially was to, to, to put a number of characters in this, uh, in this story and let them uh, let them react to the the imminent loss of their own freedom. See how how would they actually respond? Uh, what's the price you will have to pay to stand up and fight for your own freedom? Well, that's certainly a very timely question to ask with all the controversies that are going on in our country today, and even in the world. Uh, there seems to be that kind of ugly, tyrannical head raised in a lot of countries, and there's a lot of questions in our country right now. Absolutely. And, and you spend a great deal of your time dealing with government and in, in a public policy research uh, mode, so this is on your mind a lot, I guess. It, it is. 
I uh, I uh, worked for a free market think tank, um, and and I uh, when people ask what I do for a living, I say I spend all my my days trying to convince politicians not to raise taxes. That's of course a simplification. There's a lot more issues around, but yeah, I work with these issues on a daily basis, and 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 um, the the questions of of when we are free and what it means to be free are are. Uh, around us all the time. Um, I, I meet people on a daily basis that that uh, uh, can make decisions, politicians that can make decisions uh, that will improve our freedom or take some of it away. And I'm not saying uh, I'm going in in you know the liberal or the conservative direction. I think the the issue of freedom is as as alive for everybody. Um, but but what I what I think we all as Americans. Uh, uh, living in this country, what I think we need to do is we need to keep the issue of freedom alive and always ask ourselves, what does it mean to me to be free? What, what is it in my life that makes me feel that I'm uh, I'm a free person and I'm I'm uh, uh, can I can I expand my freedom? Can I help my neighbors? Can I help other people become more free? Uh, one of the issues that that I I was inspired by was actually the Iraq War. Uh, where we have a a a country run by a tyrant uh a a uh, a country that uh, is a free and democratic country invades that country to topple this dictator and create a free a freedom freedom and democracy in that country uh, whether that was the right or wrong thing to do I'm not going to answer but I was inspired by that and I thought well Let's say, let's sort of bring that situation to America. Let's say that we indeed had a tyrannical government here that had taken over. What would we do? And um, if we couldn't do anything, would anybody come and help us? And that's sort of part of the the the, the story that I tell in this book is that uh, it is a struggle between two uh, alien civilizations, uh, uh, the Zamorians, who are the the um, the Evil, who is the evil civilization, the evil people in this story, and the Donardians, who uh, have a federation built on very strict principles of freedom, and they can come and and uh, help us uh, in the way that the United States helped the Iraqi people, but they they may not be able to do that because there is a constitution. They have a constitution that prevents them from uh, just barging into alien worlds to, to liberate them. And there's this struggle between principles of freedom. Whose freedom are we talking about? What's the price for preserving that freedom? Is, are the Donarvians willing to put their, men, their uh, young men and women's lives at risk to save America, who is to them a totally alien world when the story starts? Now we have Thor. Uh, is, is this person named Thor? Uh, is he one of the main characters? Yes, uh, he is one of the people. Well, he he is a um, an agent who works for a um, uh, a government intelligence organization here in America, um, and he uh, finds out about this imminent in- invasion and. Um, he does what he can to put his life at, at uh, um, on the line 
to stop this invasion and to um, uh, uh, try to to do what uh, almost nobody else is able to do, namely to to um, to unveil the the pending invasion, which is which happens. I, I don't want to reveal too much of the plot, but there is a a um, the the invaders have a collaborator in the, high up in the U.S. government, and uh, this person Thor, he um, um, he knows about the plot, and he's trying to to um, uh, to unveil it and and uh, stop it. And that person is involved with a group of assassins that are are ready to take out an influential person in the country. Thor uh, is, is 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 on the track of, of uncovering a a uh, a group of assassins working for this high person in in the U.S. government. Uh, this group of assassins are taking out some high ranking uh, and the. Uh, very well-known people in the U.S. in order to silence opposition to this invasion, and and Thor is on their track trying to stop them. Yes, and he's uh, that that's that's sort of um, one one major storyline in the book. And give us the name of these invaders again. These uh, alien invaders. What what are their what's their name? The Zomorian. Zomorian. Yeah, they come from the world of Zomor, which is uh, on the edge of the galaxy, out, out in the, the um, uh, way out in space. And they are ruthless. They are run by a dictator, um, uh, whom they refer to as the Grand Leader, and it is a planet uh, totally succumbed to tyranny. Uh, we we don't know much about their uh, history in in this book, but we will in the next volume, which will be the the second volume in the Denargian Chronicles. We will learn more about how how that tyranny came about. But what they want to do is they want obviously to expand their their um, the Grand Leader wants to expand his his um, domains, and he sees the United States of America as a bridgehead toward taking over Earth. And of course, they are not at all uh, hesitant to execute, to crush any kind of of freedom-loving people who are trying to stand up against him. And not only that, when when the invasion starts, there are I'm not going to reveal too much of it, but there are some very um, uh, there are some some events in the book right as the invasion takes place, or right after they have landed, where. Well, where they they do to innocent Americans what I think most of us would find unimaginable, and the reason why I have there are some very graphic scenes in the book. The reason why I include those is that I want to show the face of tyranny, what tyranny is actually all about. Um, uh, let me uh, let me just uh, refer to my own uh, very very brief experience with that. I traveled Eastern Europe before the wall fell, and I, I saw. Um, for example, I walked along the Berlin Wall on the east side. It was one of the most transforming experiences in my own life. When you see soldiers with guns um, point, literally pointing at you as you walk toward the wall, you walk along the wall, you get stopped, you get harassed, um, and and you hear you talk to locals who live there and say, "How dare you? How dare you do that? They they could have shot you." And you realize that that um, tyranny in a tyranny. A human life is is um, subjected to or or ranked lower than an ideology, 
an abstract idea upon which the tyranny is built. And that is sort of um, part of part of the uh, the story in this book is what, what the, the the actual face of tyranny once you you come upon it as someone who 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 whom they want to to uh, subjugate and and uh, turn into a in this case basically a slave. You called your book pro libertarian. Yes, libertarianism is is to me a fascinating concept and and it has a very uh, it has many interpretations. The, the The reason why I call it pro-libertarian is that um, I believe that uh, our country, the United States of America, was founded on principles, very strong principles of freedom, and uh, uh, those principles, I, I would refer to them as libertarian principles. Uh, to me, libertarianism is um, an ideal of... of uh, as as big individual freedom as as wide ranging individual freedom as we can create, and that what that actually means when the rubber hits the road, um, that's for that's for a long night's discussion. But uh, the uh, I think the principles of libertarianism have been um, fallen a little bit behind in in the political uh, discourse here in America. I think sometimes it's being frowned upon even. Um, I don't believe that libertarianism is is um, uh, in, in is maybe the only answer, but I think it's a fascinating it's a fascinating um, cluster of of, of uh, theories. Uh, that's why I, I when I refer to the uh, the Donarvians, the the sort of good guys in this story, I refer to their civilization as built on libertarian principles uh, because I want to give those principles a chance to to. Play out and to stand uh, stand their ground against tyranny because I believe libertarianism is the ultimate the defense against tyranny uh, uh, and I think uh, there are a lot of libertarian principles that most Americans, if not everybody, would agree on. So your book has this, as you call it, a hopeful undertone that people can make a difference. Yes, ultimately, we 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 are all free to make decisions. Especially if we are in power, and uh, if we are, if you have power over other people, the decisions you make uh, are entirely your own. If you are uh, just the, uh, the average Joe, you have no political power. Then there will still come a point in your life, like for example, um, the students at the university that is also um, chronicled in the book. Uh, those students are faced with a situation where their country is being taken over. They are not directly affected by this, but they see a, 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 a an uh, unprecedented change in their lives. Uh, something is going to happen that will affect their lives uh, uh, for as long as they will be on this this world, uh, and they are free to make the decisions. Am I going to stand up and fight this, even though I have no political power, even though I may not be a soldier? Am I going to stand up and fight this tyranny, or am I going to run away? Am I going to try to just just um, live my life as usual and hope for the best? That that issue comes to life uh, in the parallel story about the students at this university uh, uh, in the book, and I, I think that is uh, to me that has been very intriguing to put that in there because I think a lot of 
I have, I've been a college professor myself. A lot of college students are, are faced with these questions because that's what the college education is about to a large degree. So I think that, that will be, I think a lot of people, especially college students, would be interested in, in that, that aspect of it. Tell us how to get your books, Sven. Oh, there's a lot of ways to do it. First of all, of course, you can go to the iUniverse.com website and you can order it there. The title again is America Occupied. But you can uh, get it through um, a large number of uh, online outlets for books, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. There are many ways to get it. Do you have a website? Uh, yes. Uh, there is a website for the book. Uh, it is a blog, and it's called uh, AmericaOccupied.wordpress.com. And uh, you can order the book there as well. And get more information there about, I'm sure, about the characters, the plot. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Well, very good. This is part one of a series of books, and we really appreciate you being with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was S.R. Larson. He is the author of his book, which is going to be a series of books. This is America Occupied, The Darnarvian Chronicles, part one. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Call Me Shady, and the author is Carol Southwood, and Carol joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Carol. Hello, Steve. 
by the title of the book, we really don't know what the book is about. So I guess in telling the reason why you wrote the book, we'll better understand in general, and then we'll get into some details. So first of all, Carol, why did you write your book, Call Me Shady? I wrote my book because my typist, at the time I, I met her, started telling me her life story, which was very interesting to me. So you were, you were writing something else. You were creating another book. I was writing poetry and short fiction at the time. And I was given her business card, and I called her, and I started taking my material to her to type. And before I would leave, she just talked to me. We talked. We both smoked a lot at the time. And we would stand there smoking, and she would tell me about her life. And it fascinated me so. She talked so much about it that it got into me, and I felt that it was part of me, and I had to write it. So I'd go home and write down her story and come back and surprise her with her own story instead of giving her my work. And she started to type it, and it grew from there. Now, you and her are from, you say you're from different cultural backgrounds. Yes, yes. She, she had a very neglected, abused life. And when she would talk to me, I mean, it was, it was apparent that we were the same age. We grew up in the same city, and... and we were very alike in a lot of ways. I mean, we both sit there smoking, drinking coffee, talking, and we just got along wonderfully as though as though we were twins. But we came from these two different lives. She was she was her mother. She, her father was in life. Okay, go ahead. Um, she she was on welfare at the time. I worked. Um, I had I, I considered myself privileged compared to her, um, she just had a, a difficult life. And she'd tell me her story, and I would just really relate to it, and I'd write it down, and she'd get fascinated by it. And she'd say, how did you know that? How did you know I felt that way? And I said, I don't know. You give me your facts, I supply it with feelings, and I write it. So your book is uh, based on a true story, this woman's true story. And yet, at the same time, you call it fiction. I call it fiction because editors and publishers didn't want me not to. And it's got a very long history with a lot of publishers and a lot of editors. One publisher had it for three years. They were almost going to print it, and they didn't. Um, Knopf had it for a couple, he read it for a couple times. He said, I love this, but I'm not going to print it. Um, thank God for our universe. I finally said, well, you know, none of these people want to take a risk. I'll take the risk myself. I believe in my book. So here's a, as you call her, an ordinary person. Yes. Uh, but obviously very, having very unique, very demanding struggles in life. Yes. That, and, that and, most people probably could relate to. That most people could relate to? Right. Absolutely. Anybody could re- relate to her life, I-, I would think. I certainly related to it. And I have, you know, I, I have an, like a middle class life, maybe in a lot of ways that considered upper middle class. And I work, I work hard. You know, she, she was poor. And on she top of poor. that, and on top of being poor, abused. 
Oh, yes, abused and neglected. She was raised by her father. And the, the book is told from her point of view, of course, because she, she's telling me her story. And, you know, she would see things like her father had wads of money stashed. He had, he had guns and he had girlfriends. And um, she was very resilient. And I think that's what impressed me about her. How does somebody talk about these things and not, you know, break down or feel, feel... She never felt she never felt like a victim. That's what impressed me about her as well. Why do you think she didn't feel like a victim? Well, as she would tell me, she felt she was holding on to her story because... She was supposed to, she wanted a book written about herself, or she would write a book about herself, and she thought that I was the one that was going to do it, and I did. So fate brought you two together. Yeah, that's how it seems, yeah. That is really, really fascinating, especially, like you said, you felt like you were, what did you say, twins? Yes, well, she called us, she always said we were two sides of the same coin. I mean, I would go to her house. She was in an interracial relationship. And I would go to her house, and it, it, it was easy for me. And, and my mother, who you would think, would say, well, you know, what are you doing here? It was poor. It was a poor neighborhood. I'd go to her house every day, and, and, and children would gather around, and I'd read the story to them, and she'd talk to me, and I'd write it down. See, I think what publishers didn't, what, what, what editors and publishers objected to is that all the while I was writing this, she would, she typed it on an IBM Selectric typewriter. And I was making that apparent as I wrote it. And I think it was too complicated. Viking hid my book once and said, how would we follow this? It's too original. That's why I had to do it myself. But then I took all of that out because it is over 27 years, Steve. 27 years of editors... Um, saying, well, you may, you know, take this out, don't put that in. So it was, I, I don't know. I, so I don't, you really I couldn't tell the story the way you wanted to tell it? No, I couldn't. I couldn't because I think it has to do with, with marketing, with, with um, litigation sorts of issues. So and, this and re- even with iUniverse, I wanted to call it, I didn't want to say a novel. I, I didn't want to say a novel, but... I, I had to say a novel. Well, this is, as you as you describe this, this is a, you call it a, the characters typing her life story in the author's literary voice. It's, it has that other dimension. Now, explain what you mean by that other dimension. The other dimension, are those the words I use? That's what you've written down here, yes. I did, okay. <laughs> I like that. Okay. Okay, the other dimension is, I, I think while I was writing it, I felt as though it was my life. And I, I felt as though I was telling my own story through her experiences. Because I would say these horrible things that happened to her, and even though those things didn't happen to me, I experienced those feelings. And I, and I guess that's what's shady about it on top of all the shady characters in it is that one wonders what this author has to do with all this, although I'm not in it. I enter it as the author, but I don't enter it as a character in and of myself. 
You say it's an original way of writing a memoir. That's it right. It is very original. <laughs> that's right, and I, and I wish I called it a memoir because that, that's really what it is. Well, one it, editor that I worked with once called it Meta New Journalism. <laughs> Whatever that is. Whatever that is, right. <laughs> he said, I could, I could publish this as Meta New Journalism, but it had three different typesets, and it showed the different voices because there was Near Past, which was she telling me her story. There was Far Past, which was the story itself, and then I would speak directly to the reader, and I maintained that somewhat in the middle section of my book. It's, it, and people tell me that's what they like best about it, which was what the whole book was originally. People tell me they like when they see us interacting together as I'm writing her story that she's telling me and she's typing. And it seems to me, as I listen to you, talk about how, how closely related you feel with your friend Feeling like she's, like you say, you know, uh, like a part of the family. Mm-hmm. Is that, put it in a very simple term, I guess, we're all God's children, and you have experienced that in the most dramatic way. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We're all part of the same global family, even though there's, you know, uh, most of the time we don't look at each other that way. We see people all the time. We're crossing paths with them. We've seen them on the street in restaurants and stores, and and we go by each other, and sometimes we say hello, and we smile, and sometimes we just pass by people and Mm -hmm. never react to them, and they don't react to us. That's right. But here, all of a sudden, you are part of this woman's life in a in a in a way that most people would never experience because exactly. this person was a wasn't really. I mean, the only reason you ever met her is because she was typing for you. Exactly, exactly. And I remember the first time I went to her house, I was greeted at the door by by a a, a, a white girl. Girl, I'm by girl. I mean, like a, a maybe a ten year old or a twelve year old, and she had blonde hair and blue eyes. And then this 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 very very black girl came down the stairs with pink curlers in her hair and going, "Hi, mommy!" And they're all calling her mommy. And then there's a little girl that was kind of honey colored, <laughs> and they're all calling her mommy. And I thought, "Whoa, this is fascinating." And the minute we met, it we just clicked. From two different, completely different lives, different experiences, like you say, different cultural backgrounds, mm-hmm. uh, probably would never have met at all in life and gotten to be close. That's correct, except that we did live in the same city. See, we, there were these little coincidences about us. Our dogs had the same names when we were little. I went to a, a, a Catholic girls' school. She went to a Catholic girls' reformatory. I mean, we, there were things that were factually we had in common, but antithetical in a lot of ways. And she's in this Catholic reformatory with, with nuns, and I was in a, a Catholic, a private school, a boarding school. I didn't board. I was a day student, but I, I just completely related to where she was put because she was being punished. And I was, I was put there, and, you know, my, my mother sent me there so that I could learn the arts and... And we sort of were just interchangeable people when we met. It's kind of going down two roads, parallel roads, and then somewhere down the road, these roads kind of crossed. Yes. And you met. And And then all of a sudden you were on the same road. 
Pardon? Then you were both on the same road after that. That's correct, yes. So what do you want readers to learn from this? What are you trying to, to say to us? I think what I'm trying to say, and it's, it's, it's been a lesson to me, is that people can survive horror, and they do. And, I mean, this isn't nearly as horrible as the things other people survived. I mean, today's the anniversary of 9-11, and people are surviving that. People are surviving people they lost. But I think what strikes me most about my friend is that she survived all of this and is happy and doesn't resent it. We, we tend to think, oh, my God, how can I go through that? What would I do? But people do live through things that feel they're living through them for a reason other than simply to suffer. And that just fascinated me about her. Didn't suffer the way she did. I related to what she went through, of course. How could I have, you know, stuck it out for 27 years writing this book? And I, I've never let it go because I couldn't. With all the seriousness of this book, you also say it's funny. It's, I think it's very funny, and a lot of people think it's funny. A lot of people think it's, oh, that's my, my, one of my very close friends, but there's nothing funny about that. That's horrible. But a lot of people think it's funny, and we didn't, all the while I wrote it and she talked to me, we laughed. That's yeah. what struck me about it. She said, I don't, I'm not suffering. I don't resent my life. And not that she's a shallow person or a person that things just roll off her back. They don't. She's very, very, very deep and um, insightful. Well, life is much more than our experiences then. That's absolutely what I want people to, to see in there. You know, we're much more than what we go through. That's right. Even though it often can demand every part of us, every moment of focus, every emotion, every thought, but we still are much more than our experiences. That's right, and, and, and it, we, it's impossible for us to judge how somebody must feel because of what they went through, or how somebody must feel because they have a lot of money, or because they're privileged, or, you know, you can feel terrible. The way you are and the way you feel and who you are inside as a spirit, has really got nothing to do with the way you appear. Well, it's because it's how we deal with all these experiences that really uh, give meaning to life. Yes, yes. Well, that's very fascinating, very fascinating, Carol. Very, very different, uh, uh, very unique, uh, compelling, uh, sad, funny. Mm -hmm. uh, and the characters in your friend's life are... Some of them are pretty shady. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. But that's the way life is, too, right? We, we see a lot of shady people, yeah. you know, everywhere, in the media. We often come across them in life. We have some friends that maybe we would right? say they're and, a bit shady. And I'm shady, too, calling it a novel. <laughs> <laughs> so well, call me shady. Yeah. So. Yeah. Call Me Shady. That's mm -hmm. the title of the book. Yes. Call Me Shady. Well, Carol, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get it through iUniverse, iUniverse.com on the, on, the, on the web, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble. It's available in my hometown here at, in Niagara Falls at um, the book corner. 
It's available at private bookstores. Um, not pri- what do you call the bookstore? Um, you know, an independent bookstore in Buffalo, Talking Leaves. Well, we appreciate you sharing your story, your book, with us on iUniverse Radio. Carol, thank you. Thank you so much. That was Carol Southwood. She is the author of her book, Call Me Shady. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Lucifer's Trumpet, and the author is John Williams, and John joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, John. Good morning. How are you? This is the book about the Roaring Twenties. Why did you write it? It's been been going on for about seven, eight years now. In fact, I was in Seattle uh, doing some, some of my research, uh, 9-11-01, and uh, that's when I got a lot of my uh, ideas and feeling for Seattle. We walked all around and, and, and went to the different places, like one of the spots in Seattle that I have is the underground, and we do a lot of, a lot of the story goes on there. Some of the story happens up in Port Angeles, we went up there, did a lot of things like that. This story comes out of your experiences hearing your father talk about, what, the coal mines? He worked in the coal mines? Yeah, my father worked in the coal mines in, in uh, Nanaimo, Canada, on British Columbia, the island, Vancouver Island up there. My father was a coal miner in Canada. He didn't like the mines. He went to work about eight years old, when he was about eight years old, and he worked there for a lot of years and got offered a job um, come down to Seattle. And <clears throat> he told me some stories about how he worked for a guy, and the guy ended up being a, a bootlegger because it was during the Prohibition era. And he did do everything that I put in the book. But basically, the book is about changes. He was born and raised in a small um, Welch mining community. And had he stayed there, he would have been all right. But he, didn't, he wasn't satisfied staying there, staying there. So he moved out. And as he moved, each 
Each step he took or each level he reached, he found out was harder. He had to start rethinking some of his values, some of the things that he'd learned as a child. Things kept changing on him. And what I tried to do with the book was to move him along, get him comfortable, and then get him into trouble again. Get him comfortable, get him into trouble again. He was comfortable running um, the, the whiskey because he, he liked to drink, and he, and he didn't think anything was wrong with drinking because being Canadian, he didn't worry about prohibition. But he also got into, he found out that they were going to um, have uh, chemical uh, weapons that they had confiscated from the Germans from World War I, and that's where it got real tacky. And the book kind of culminated. It moves along, and, and it ends up where he coming down by himself and has to bring these weapons to a place where they, um, the highest bidders from the different nefarious countries are going to bid on his uh, on the weapons, and whoever buys them is going to take them, and no, no matter no telling what they're going to do with them. But it comes down to that point where he's progressed from a boy driving a mule team in the mines to a man has to make a decision, and it's a, a it's a huge it's a huge transformation from start to finish, and and he ends up, uh, I think, doing the right thing. So, so this character is Samuel Wild, which is based a, a little on your father. A little, I, and a little on me because I always think, well, gee, if he would have got drunk, what would he have done? And that's me. And I think, well, that's what I would have done. <laughs> that's so what you would have done. Huh? So Samuel likes to uh, he likes his lifestyle. He gets hooked up with this. Uh, let's see, Milo is his name, Milo <laughs> D'Angelo. Yeah, Milo D'Angelo is the man that uh, gave him the job in and, Seattle, and he is a fish broker. But he's but, more than just a fish broker. He was a fish. Yeah, he's a fish broker, and he he was running uh, whiskey. But he was actually the the one that had all these. Um, uh, chemical weapons, and he was the one that had bought them up, and he was the one setting up everything. And as as Samuel progressed, and as Milo got confidence in Samuel, Samuel, uh, he moved him up, and finally Samuel was going around the state, actually up into Port Angeles, and picking up um, these chemical weapons, and bringing them back, and hiding them, and getting them ready for the, uh, by the auction that was going to happen. And the closer you get to the auction, the more where the action takes place. People all of a sudden are, nobody is who they seem to be to him. And people are all of a sudden starting to show their colors, um, people getting killed. You're finding out that people were stealing from Milo. Milo has no tolerance for that. Um, fixing the, people fixing the books on him, doing diff- different things. And Samuel all of a sudden is caught in the middle of, what am I going to do? What am I, am I going to do? And he gets to the point where he has to make a decision. And at the end of the book, he's coming down with a load of chemical weapons on a van going to deliver them to this uh, auction spot. And that's kind of where the everything builds up to that. Everything builds up to being from changing your life and moving ahead with your life, or his life, I should say. So he's making a lot of different decisions, and as he moves through his life, then 
some of the values that he grew up with and starts to be challenged, and he has to make some very critical decisions. Yeah, completely going against everything that he actually grew up with. For example, in Canada, in that, I don't know in Canada, and I'm not saying this, but he had a low opinion of Chinese. Well, he ends up, and he had a low opinion of women, but that was, I think, the era, or what was happening in that era. But he ends up having to work for a Chinese, a Chinese woman who's a U.S. marshal, and she's the one who he finally, uh, she's finally the only one that he has going for him as he's getting getting ready to end this this whole episode. And hey. that's Anna Alt. Anna, okay. Uh huh. She plays a real she she plays a real important part because she she. Kind of slaps him down a lot of times. She's, you know, she she says, "No, nah, you're not going to pull that crap on me. You're not going to, going to, you know, that prejudice stuff isn't going to go. We got a life and death situation here, and you're not going to hold us back because of that." So he changes, <laughs> and and he learns from his mistakes. He learns from his mistakes. Yep. And you know, and it's like anything. If you don't learn from your mistakes, you don't move ahead. You don't move on. You. Stay there in that same mistake. And you also say you enjoyed watching Samuel's emergence as a man overcoming his fears. So right. That's an important part of this this uh, storyline. Well, you know, and, and his fear, his, the one fear I carried through the whole book was at four years old, Samuel was out with his father who was a drunk, and they were in a rowboat, and the father was trying to make Samuel, teach Samuel how to swim, and Samuel... They didn't want to go in swimming. The water was cold or whatever. So the father held him in um, under the water, and he was swearing. And just before Samuel blacked out, he heard this music. He heard sounds, musical sounds, tones coming to him, and then he blacked out, and he had forgotten what, uh, had forgotten about him. But they were kind of buried in his subconscious, I guess. And one time, years later, uh, when he was 18, 17, 18, it, he brought that up again, and somebody said, "Well, that's you heard you heard Lucifer's trumpet. Uh, the devil's coming for your soul. When you hear that, the devil's coming for your soul." And on through the book, he at different times he does hear that. He hears that music, and that sort of sets him back. Well, at the end of the, and he's deathly afraid of deep water. He doesn't go swimming on Lake Washington. He's afraid of deep water. He's never learned how to swim. And at the end, he's got a deep water and that's that's what he has to overcome and he either does that or the weapons go out and that's he, he's it he's the, the final stop yeah for those uh for the weapons going into the world and he has to not only face literally deep water but he also has to face the deep water of his life the sim- the symbolic deep water that that's right absolutely Absolutely, it's the point where that's it. You you either going to sink or swim at this point, and literally sink or swim. And fortunately, he, uh, yeah, I, I think he did the right thing. What's another key character? Well, there's, there's quite a few. One of the characters in there is an effeminate man named Conrad, and Samuel Samuel thinks he's gay and. He might be gay, and I never figured that out in the book, but uh, he sort of takes Samuel under his wing. He's the one that, that gives Samuel his illegal whiskey. 
So Samuel has to play ball with him. Doesn't want to, but he has to. Well, after a while, Conrad is taking, takes him out and he takes him to the library and shows him, gets him uh, interested in reading and takes him to different spots around Seattle and uh, places like that. And he starts, they, they build up a real uh, friendship. And pretty soon the, the idea or the thought of the sexuality is kind of gone out of their relationship. They're friends. And he comes down in there. He finds out that uh, Conrad is one of the guys who's one of the good guys helping him out on this, uh, this you know, saving the, the world, more or less. And, and it's, it's, I build that up. There's, a, there's another character, John, who he meets in the underground because Samuel, Samuel comes from hard times. I mean, he doesn't know class. He doesn't know uh, polish or anything. He, he's, a, he's a rough uh, a diamond in a rough, or whatever you want to call it, and he <clears throat> he learns from everybody. This John is an alcoholic, and he lives in the underground. And you know the underground in Seattle. Are you familiar with it? No. Oh, you know, anyway, that that was a place that the uh, forefathers had. They had the big fire in Seattle, so they built an underground that wiped out all downtown Seattle in the late 1800s. And they built this underground with shops and things like that, and it worked for a while. But after a while. People didn't like it. it was too dark and whatever. So they boarded it up so all the bums went and lived there and you could get anything there. You could get anything you wanted in the underground. And Samuel drifted there, of course, because that's how he was. And he met a, uh, this bum, alcoholic John, who was at one time a, uh, a professor in uh, a school in Oregon. And uh, he just drank himself into that position. But he had a lot of good, a lot of good information, and changed, uh, opened Samuel's eyes to a lot of the world, a lot of the things. And Samuel came very close with him, and they would have these bouts of drinking and stuff. But it would, he'd always feel something good when he came out, kind of coming like I don't know, coming out of an AA meeting or something like that. But he always felt good with it after he talked to John. At the same time, you say Samuel is a funny guy. He's funny. He does. He does funny things. I, I try to, yeah, I try to inject a lot of humor in there because uh, I did stand-up comedy, and I kind of my eye, no matter what the situation is, I can always see some, the humorous side of almost everything. And I try to, I try to add that. I, I have a place where Samuel's trying to find out what happened to this woman he loves, and he goes to this old lady's house and there's the apartment, and she shows him up, and she's talking about everything other than what he, he wants to get and see this woman. And she's telling him how she used to be a, a dancer up in Alaska and between Sitka, and she'd do little dances for him and stuff like this. And it, it's, I, I, I do have a lot of humor. He gets in some embarrassing spots. He's, he has a problem, sexually has a problem, getting aroused one time when he, that's all he wanted to do was be with this woman. And boom, all of a sudden he's got, uh-oh, I got problems. So, <laughs> he puts himself know, in all kinds of situations. All kinds of situations. And it's all situations that I think people have every day. I know a lot of people have them. They'll run into different things. But it's mainly, it's mainly getting past your fears and moving on and doing what's right is what the whole theme of the book is. During a very... You know, different time, obviously, with the 
uh, all the situation with prohibition and the depression, but at the same time, a much simpler time. Yeah, very, very simple time. I, like I was saying, it's the, it, instead of microchips, it was gears. You know, I mean, you could, everybody could fix their car. Um, every garage, could get, you could always get your car home. That You'd never stall on the highway unless you dropped the engine out or something like that. But you could always fix things. I remember my father taking me down. Uh, we used to go to Santa Cruz from Oakland. I'm from Oakland. And he'd take us over the mountains, and we'd have flat tires. And many a time, he'd pull the, the tire off, repair the, the tube, put the tube back in, and we'd be on our way again. Well, you wouldn't do that now. No. I no. mean, and, and, you know, it, just, it, it was a good time. It'd take you a long time to get places. And while you were traveling, you would see things. You wouldn't get there so fast that you missed everything in between. You had time. You, you looked out the window, and you saw things, and... You stopped at different places and, and met people and stuff. I, I still am one that, who would rather drive than fly any day. Um, my wife and I, when we come to the mainland, we, we rent a car and we just go. And we don't even sometimes know where we're going to go. We just go. And that, that's, sort of, that's sort of, I think, Samuel's um, attitude towards life. He just wants to take, he just wants to get out. And, and the other thing with Samuel, let me just regress a quick bit here, but he and his friend Jack, who was his childhood friend, were offered the same job at the same time in the same bar by Milo, and Jack didn't go. Jack decided to stay back in the mines. So it just goes to show what one man is, and they were best of friends, and what may, you know, one man is okay with something and another man is afraid and won't take that chance. Well, John, sounds like a very, very fast-moving, interesting uh, mystery, and we just need to know how to get your book. Well, you, you know, um, I have a website, and it's jwilliamsbooks, that's plural, books, uh, dot com, and iUniverse sells it, um, Amazon sells it, Barnes & Noble, get it, but go to, go to my website, and that's the best, take a look at it. John, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Right. Thank you. Okay, thank you. That was John Williams. He is the author of his book, Lucifer's Trumpet. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.